I think to understand why I turned bullish on inflation, you have to understand why we had this inflation for the past 40 years. And basically it was cheap capital, cheap labor, cheap goods. These were the three engines of the great disinflation. Now, if I look at it today, they're all kind of breaking down at the same time. So these to me are the structural drivers of inflation. Uh, and this is the reason why I think inflation is secular. And these are things that the Fed cannot really do much about. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by Vincent Deloard, who's a global macro strategist at StoneX. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. This is the first time I've heard your voice uh, on many, many of my favorite macro podcasts. So it's a pleasure to uh, to get to do this in person for sure. Um, so I, I would love to, you know, we were sort of talking before we got on here. What I'd love to kind of do here is tease out both your sort of cyclical shorter to midterm view. Uh, and then I would love to kind of get your, your secular and long-term view on just your kind of overall macro framework. So, you know, markets have had the pleasure of digesting a whole bunch of economic data this past uh, week or so. We've had a CPI print that came in a little bit hot, at least on a year-over-year -year basis, a hot PPI print, uh, strong retail sales. I guess my question to you is, do you see things kind of heating up again? Yeah, I do. Uh, and, and that is the, uh, it's not a surprise to me because I've always been in the camp that the economy is, is much hotter than people think. And it's, it's going to take a lot more to slow it down than kind of the dovish people narrative had. But now the, the data I see in the market is, has to, awakened to the fact that, yeah, the economy is still creating 500,000 jobs. Uh, we are seeing things that actually surprise even myself, like things like uh, used car prices are going back up, stabilization mm -hmm. in the real estate market. Um, and yeah, it could be that actually Q4 was a semester, maybe not re-acceleration, but certainly stabilization of growth. Uh, and yeah, inflation fell. Uh, wage growth is very strong, so people had more disposable income in Q4. Uh, we still have all these, you know, animal spirits, speculative juices in the market, which, you know, you see that in Solana, Carvana, Bed Bath and beyond. So to some extent, we, you know, financial conditions ease a lot, despite what Powell seemed to have said in the last press conference. Mm -hmm. So we kind of back to where we were earlier in the summer. Except that now we have a Fed funds rate, which is, you know, on its way to 5%. <laughs> it's, you know, it's been funny, actually, even just this past, uh, this past week or so, when this kind of stronger economic data came in, you saw yields on the two-year, for instance, creep up. The twos and tens, you know, continues to descend further and further into Correct. inverted territory. And I think the terminal rate is sitting right around 5.4% now. At the same time, though, we've seen stocks actually hold up and respond relatively yeah. positively. That seems to be conflicting data. What do you make of that? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's just the... Uh, everybody was positioned for a half one recession half one to 2023 i mean you know going i mean i i like to read the uh investment outlooks not because they're interesting because most of the time they are not you know people will be <laughs> expect oh like the you know like stocks are gonna go up with some volatility and you know you should buy quality stocks with a good dividend thank you uh but uh <laughs> this year <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I want to use it to get a sense of what is the consensus view among, you know, people who watch markets and, and going into uh, 2023, you had this extraordinarily, unusually strong consensus that, you know, we're going to have a recession, bonds were the place to be, value of a growth, 
emerging over US. And of course, when everybody's on sided, it doesn't take all that much to kind of flip, um, um, create some drastic moves because everybody has to switch back. So people had to reposition for the fact that, yeah, maybe we're not going to have a recession in, half, in the first half. I would argue we may not even have in the second half of next year. I mean, it's possible, but I just don't, you know, we'll see what the data says. But at this point, it's too early to say that. Uh, everybody was positioned for value to outperform growth. And of course, well, you know, the exact opposite happened. Uh, it's one of these very, in my view, it's a very vicious counter cycle move. Um, it's the law of maximum pain. <laughs> And, and I, I suspect we are somewhat at the point of maximum pain. Uh, now we have done, we've gone through this portfolio rotation process. Uh, yields have come up quite a bit. And I think we are getting at the point, as we've seen in recent days, when um, good economic news is bad news for the market again. Now, Vincent, uh, I'd be curious, like, what do you attribute this sort of uh, pickup in economic activity to, right? Because some, it's, it's, you know, to me, when I'm trying to parse it out, it's, it's a little bit muddled because some of the forward-looking data actually looks looks pretty bad, right? But, uh, you know, now we're kind of looking at, like you said, like used car prices bouncing again, strong retail sales uh, on, you know, kind of the other side of the world. We've got the China reopening, so right. a little bit of discontinuity in between central banking policies. Like, I'd just be curious, like, how do you sort of parse through these sorts of conflicting, uh, often at odds uh, indicators? Well, I think you had objective, two huge, objectively positive surprise for global growth. One is Europe did not freeze to death. We did not even have a recession in Q4 in Europe. I mean, by the smallest increment, but I think it was 0.01% growth, which no yeah. one expected that, right? Remember, go back to the the summer, nat gas price, you know, Europe is going to deindustrialize. We're going to freeze to death. We're going to like, yeah. you know, we, we went from like, basically Europe is going to go back to the Stone Age to, I mean, I, I was in France two weeks ago. I mean, it's, everything's normal. I mean, People are grumpy. They're on strike. Uh, but but other than that, everything is normal, uh, which actually it is normal, too. Um, <laughs> and so you, you, Europe Europe is OK. And it's a lot of luck, right? warm weather, um, good storage, whatever. But it, it's 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 holding a little better. And then you have the China reopening. So, I mean, if you think of the economy as, you know, four buckets, right, uh, the global economy, U.S., Europe, China uh, and every, everything, everybody else. Um, U.S. is more resilient than, than what we thought, and I'll get into this later. Europe is not dying, and China is reopening, which lifts, by extension, the Australia's, the Canada, Canada Brazil, all of these places that, that are leveraged play on, on Chinese growth. So you had a positive shock to global growth, uh, objectively, something that people did not see um, going into the quarter. And then the second part to the, the strength is, is U.S. resilience, which, which I always thought was, was underestimated. People underestimated the resilience of the consumer, uh, the, the wage growth, and how much of the COVID stimulus is still running in the system. Um, people always thought, oh, we have, you know, the 4% rate is going to break the economy uh, because they kind of remember what happened in, in late 2018 when the Fed, had, you know, like as soon as rates went up and then when we had the, the repo market freeze, there's this view that there is that level of yield that will just break everything. And that level of yield has come up. Why has it come up? Because nominal GDP is 40% higher than it was three years ago. We are in a much better spot to tolerate uh, higher yields because people have deleveraged, uh, because nominal growth is much, much higher. I mean, yeah, if you have about 10% nominal GDP growth, which is what we have, 5% Fed funds rate is not restricted. It was restricted three years ago. It no longer is. It, I would argue stimulative. 
Because one of the things that, to, to exactly your point, that end of 2018, early 2019 period where Powell famously pivoted and we got the phrase, the pivot, um, you know, that was kind of people were looking at that level at the 10 year, that was about two and a half or 2.8%, right? And we've sort of blown blown past that. Uh, to, to my surprise as well, I'm surprised we haven't seen more stress. There's a little bit, you know, the guilt market uh, had their little stumble uh, a little while ago, but largely things have been okay. And you you had, uh, there was a great interview, I think, on, on Oddlots recently, uh, Steve Eisman kind of came in and said, actually, the, the US banking sector is pretty rock solid. And honestly, treasury yeah. market also pretty rock solid. And, Are and, you and for him, for him to say that, you know, knowing his history, I mean, right. it's, I think you should always pay attention to people who have, you know, made one call in one direction and are making the opposite call. I mean, because you know that his bias is going to be on the other side. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So that, that's what that's exactly why it stuck out to me. So to be honest, it, it kind of seems like, you know, everything feels relatively solid. Um I, I'm not sure if this is so much of a question to you as a statement that it, it's been surprising to many. And I guess that that fear has kind of subsided that we're going to see some kind of break in liquidity in the, the treasury market or something like that. But yeah, so, something that I, I that helped a lot, which is going to switch is uh, dynamic of the TGA, right? So treasury general account yeah. is the, the the government checking account, the Fed. Uh, so when, when you draw money from the TGA, you injecting liquidity in the economy. Now, because of the debt ceiling and because of, because of the fact that TGA had been replenished by about a trillion six months ago, we've been able to draw that down. So if you look on, on a net basis, TGA minus uh, the Fed's balance sheet, you had more money leaving the TGA than you had quantity tightening. So if you consolidate the public sector, which I think you should, I mean, it's kind of the MMT view that you know the, the, the Fed and the Treasury are two sides of the same coin, the public sector had been injecting liquidity on a net basis into the economy. Um, now, of course, this cannot go on forever, right? Because QT is going to keep coming at you know 95 billion a month uh, until Powell changes it. But so far, he's not talking about it. While the TGA, once you hit a very low balance, you have to refit it. So that, I think that's one of the reasons why why I expect this kind of big, impressive move to lose steam. And I think we're already starting to see some of that right now. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you know, when we're talking about liquidity, you kind of just picked out two of the three factors that at least I pay attention to the TGA Treasury General account, kind of like the checkings account of the United States government, the Treasury, when they're spending money, it's liquidity, liquidity positive, then there's the Fed's balance sheet. But then there's also the reverse repo, right? And that right. is another, there's still a lot of uh, money that I think it's $2 trillion or so yeah. that's in the reverse repo facility. If that were to leave, right, I think the Fed knows that that's in the in that kind of has that in their back pocket that, that if that were to leave, that's liquidity positive as well. Could you, Vincent, I, I don't know how much you are familiar with the reverse repo, but can you just talk about how you think about that? And I think one of the Fed governors recently mentioned that they consider funds that are in the reverse repo to be a part of the banking system. Could you help disentangle that concept for us here? Well, so j- just to walk back maybe for the audience, reverse repo is a facility where if you have excess cash, you can give it to the Fed. Uh, and then you'll earn um, uh, basically the, I mean, the, the, the repo rate, which is close to the to the deposit rate. Uh, the people who use that the most are, are money market funds because uh, they have they collect everybody's cash. Uh, so what they've been doing, and it's, I think it's somewhat disturbing, is instead of buying bills, they just put the money uh, in cash at the RRP. Uh, because net, it was just easier, simpler, and, and they were the, the yield were, were comparable. I think what the Fed wanted when they started QT, uh, they wanted the reverse repo to be drained. Um, 
instead, what we've been seeing is the drainage has come from, from banks' excess reserves. Uh, so hopefully going forward, uh, that will come. There's this big question about how much excess reserves we need. That's a question that no one has the answer to. I think the uh, New York Fed has come up with a paper about a year ago saying they have $2 trillion. They, they think $2 trillion excess reserve is, is what they want to get to. Uh, now the question is, do you include the reverse repo in that number or not? And if they want to, if they want to include that number, that means that excess reserves are much higher. Uh, and as a result, they need to shrink the balance sheet a lot more to get where, where they think uh, liquidity should settle over the long term. But again, th these are all soft numbers. No one really knows for sure. And then there's also this question about excess liquidity. My, my impression, and um, actually on this, I'm totally in agreement with a uh, Fed guy, Joseph Wang, is yeah. you know nature abhors a vacuum. So excess liquidity, liquidity which may have been excessive three years ago, is no longer excessive. People find a use for it. If you have cash, that's the nature of Wall Street, right? If you have a big pile of money somewhere, eventually we'll securitize it, we'll lend it, we'll short it, we'll borrow it, whatever, we'll do something with it. So my suspicion is that some of that excess liquidity that was indeed excessive three years ago is actually not excessive. And maybe we'll run into liquidity problems faster than we expect. Uh, and that would be one of the reasons to be cautious on the stock market. I, I don't think we're out of the you know guild market, like the, the things we saw in uh, earlier last year uh, when we saw liquidity being a constraint. I, I am still more more um, worried about liquidity than I am about the economy. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. So let's let's maybe zoom out here, and uh, you know I actually want to rewind the clock back to uh, late 2020, early 2021. Uh, you know you were kind of very early and and very loud, I would say, in calling for inflation, or at least that people should be be worrying about it. This was at a time when there was there was no appetite on Wall Street or or anywhere else to to hear that prediction. What That's gave me, I you know. the confidence? <laughs> I, I know you know what what was the what was your framework like? What gave you the confidence? What did you notice that? Uh, or pay attention to that no one else did? I think to understand why I turned bullish on inflation, you have to understand why we had this inflation for the past 40 years. And basically, it was cheap capital, cheap labor, cheap goods. Uh, I'll go very briefly, because uh, cheap capital, we had these massive excess savings uh, from Europe because of the launch of the euro that created this huge trade surplus in Germany, Switzerland, et cetera, um, that did, could not be reinvested domestically. I mean, they tried a little bit you know, with the pigs and sovereign debt crisis blew that up. So then Europe was generating about 500 billion in surpluses that were finding their ways into 
the U.S. Treasury market and U.S. assets. Uh, you had a similar situation going on with oil producers, OPEC, you know, building all these massive reserves, uh, sovereign wealth funds and so forth, all flowing into the Treasury market. And then on top of that, you had China joining WTO in 2000 with an artificially cheap exchange rate, and then they had to build reserves. So you had these three savings like rivers feeding into the U.S. Treasury market. And that was almost like gravity. I mean, if you look at a chart of the 30-year yield uh, since 2000, just down, 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 as if a force was pulling it down. Um, that's the first reason. Second reason, of course, is cheap goods. Everybody understands that. China opens up. So you have 1.4 billion people economy, super cheap exchange rate, good infrastructure, huge demographic bulge. I mean, this was just, you know, if you look at the U.S. CPI, and, and I think that is very important, I think we had, two CPIs for a very long time. We had this artificial CPI at about 2%, but really that was the product of what I would call the US service CPI, which was running at 5%. So the US service CPIs, things like healthcare, things like higher education, uh, things like the cost of a ski lift ticket at uh, Lake Tahoe, uh, things like um, uh, haircuts, but anything that was uh, using American labor was going at 5%. Uh, and then you had the Chinese CPI, things like TVs, toys, electronics, garments, and more and more things of the Chinese economy diversified, which was actually dropping in price. And on average, I'd give you 2%. But I would argue that 2% was, was fictitious. The real underlying inflation was already at 5%, which I didn't see it because we had this, this massive shock from China through the Walmart supply chains and then eventually Amazon. Uh, so that's on the good side. Uh, and then on the labor side, um, we had in 1995 the tequila crisis in Mexico. Uh, suddenly, the, the Mexican peso lose 90% of its value. And over the next 10 years, you have 10 million Mexicans crossing the border. And these are young men, hardworking. They come in, you know, ready to work and, and huge downward pressure on wages. I mean, minimum wage hasn't increased in 40 years because of that. So you had these three. These were the three engines of the great disinflation. Now, if I look at it today, they're all kind of breaking down at the same time. On the capital side, well, Europe no longer has a trade surplus, uh, neither does Japan, or at least it's shrinking very rapidly. Uh, and we're going to need our own savings in order to mobilize them to rebuild an army and pay for our retiring boomers. So we'll no longer, European and Japanese, will no longer be financing the shopping habits of Americans. Uh, of course, OPEC, Russia, China are no longer buying U.S. treasuries because you know, they don't want to, and even if they do, their, their assets can be seized by fiat. Uh, so that's gone. Um, and um, on the good side, trade wars, China is aging, French shoring, all these things. I mean, that that pool of Chinese labor, anyway, it's shrinking. I mean, the, the, the working age population of China peaked 10 years ago. Now it's the actual population, but it's shrinking, and it's going to shrink massively because of the one-child policy, right? Every 25 years, Chinese population is almost halved. So we will no longer have access to this seemingly infinite pool of high, highly qualified, hardworking um, workers. Uh, so that's gone. And then on the labor side, uh, you actually had negative flow from Mexico for the past 10 years and that accelerated with COVID. Uh, so these to me are the structural drivers of inflation. Uh, and this is the reason why I think inflation is secular. And these are things that the Fed cannot really do much about. I mean, if anything, I mean, yeah, it can hike rates and, and send the economy into nasty, nasty recession, but why? I mean, it's like, you know, trying to swim up river at this point. Uh, for 20 years, the, you know, the current was disinflationist. So it was very easy for central bankers to hit the 2% target. They had nothing to do. They could look at other things like, oh, 
Let, let me target the price of the S&P 500. Let me target climate change, racial equity, because it was easy. Like the, the inflation was going on on its own. And now we're moving to a new environment where instead of swimming downriver, they're swimming upriver. And they will find that just, you know, the cost of keeping that 2% target is prohibitively expensive. And my expectation is that they'll put up a fight because, you know, nobody gives up without a fight, which is where we are right now. But then after some time, they'll be like, hey, listen, this is too hard. We're not going to, we want to break the labor market. We don't want to have 10%, you know, Fed funds rate. We don't want to have massive unemployment. We're just going to go with it and accept that inflation is structurally higher. Again, there's this concept that um, that I like to, people talk about R-star, right? The natural rate, you know, on the economy, whatever. That, that, that to me, that is like, okay. Can you, you can, explain like what whole, that is, Vincent? Can you yeah, just, because yeah, the Fed pays yeah, attention. Yeah. 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 If you're Catholic, it's like the Holy Ghost at Mass. Uh, so it's there, but nobody can see it, but you have to trust that it's there and you have to trust the, the, the man with the authority who, who tells you that it's there because you can't see it. And, but the, the Fed people can spend hours writing papers about it and no one can call them on it because no one knows what it is. Supposedly it's the natural level of interest rate of the economy that is neither accommodative nor restrictive, but you can't see it. I think that's somewhat of a useless concept. What I like to focus more on is the I star. So that would be the optimal level of inflation. And I believe that is something that exists, that no one pays attention, but that is different in every decade. Uh, mm. And I would argue that there was a natural level of inflation in the 2000 and 2010 that was, let's say, maybe 1, 1.8% in the US and, and 1% in Europe, 0% in Japan. It was just falling for the reasons that I was highlighting. Uh, and now that I-star is kind of rising, uh, and it seems to me that it would be a lot easier to just accept that rather than fight it. So much to unpack there. First of all, all your reasons for why you know the secular inflation thesis in 100% agreement. Uh, I think there was a longtime listeners of the shows will know I've, I've referenced this speech a lot. Sir James Goldsmith gave a great speech uh, on Charlie Rose in 1995, actually about inducting China into the um, trade alliance. So it, I'll, we'll link it in the show notes, but you should highly, uh, highly recommend you go listen to it. You know, I noticed that a lot of the times when people are talking about in, uh, you know, a secular inflation view, demographics and debt uh, comes into that. I noticed that you didn't include uh, either of those two factors. Do you think about that in time in kind of in terms of the long term secular inflation thesis? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think ultimately. Inflation is this um the solution is the solution and it's a trade-off between generation and it is it's tied with with this issue of debt uh because inflation is effectively a way the most pleasant way if, if we're not experiencing venezuela style inflation to effectively default on the owners of debts and the owners of assets and transfer income to the young the working and the poor uh which is why i am i believe that Fundamentally, inflation in a controlled way is a good thing. We have run for 40 years on building more debt on top of more debt, solving it with low interest rate, higher asset prices. And that has effectively been a transfer from the working, the poor, and the young to the idle, the rich, and the old. And as you do that, you reduce your trend growth. This is a problem that Europe has, Japan has. You have this very aging population, high level of inequalities. Uh, no one's buying homes, no one's making babies. So growth keeps falling. At the same time, your stock of debt keeps rising. 
So what needs to the income that needs to support this this expanding part of debt is shrinking and shrinking. Now, how do you solve that? Well, at first you just drop the interest rate, right? But we, we reached a logical non sequitur. We had 16 trillion of negative yielding debt. Okay, <laughs> you can't go any lower, all right? You had the Bank of Japan telling you, I'm going to yield curve control to zero all the way out. That was your signal. This cycle cannot go any longer. This is completely stupid. You are buying a bond where you lose money because you think that there will be a greater fool that will buy it so that he lose even more money. I mean, this was absurd. So you needed some sort of a deus ex machina, uh, you know, like in, in, in theater plots. You get the, the guy who comes in the middle and changes everything. That was it. That was inflation. Inflation does that. It will, uh, you know, we had nominal GDP expand by, you know, 12% in the past, you know, in 2021 and 2022. Uh, that does wonders for your part of debt. I mean, that means that suddenly you have, you're able, if, if NGDP is, is expanded by 12%, you can run deficits, fiscal deficit of 6 7% and still shrink your debt to GDP ratio which is exactly what the West is going to need in the next decade. Uh, we, we, we know we're going to have higher social spending, higher healthcare spending, higher military spending on top of that. So it's very hard to see how deficits will shrink. So if deficits cannot shrink, you need nominal GDP to expand. Now, can we increase real growth? Maybe chat GPT can change the world, whatever. But the best known way to increase nominal growth is to increase, uh, in, in, increase the price level. Yeah, you know, Vince, it's really interesting that you you say that. I mean, we uh, so I've been noted again on on the show, but you know, the Congressional Budget Office that you know puts out sort of projections, right? Has been projecting a one point six trillion dollar deficit over the next ten years. Uh, this Wednesday, they actually updated that. They said, uh, no, it's not going to be lower. It's going to be two trillion dollars a year over the next ten years. So, but this year it's going to be slightly better. So it's only nineteen over the next uh, ten years. I mean. When you really, you know, there's kind of a lot of talk about how government financing is different from household financing. And, and yes, that's true to a certain degree. But at a certain percent, at a certain, uh, you know, time, your sort of tax receipts, your your revenue kind of runs into your real obligations that you as a country can't print. Maybe that's, you know, Medicare or healthcare services that you promise or entitlements or, or whatever it is. And the, the point I'm trying to get to is like something's got to give. You know, if you're kind of in a seat of power, like you have to find a way to basically soft default, right, on the obligation, because you have a non-sustaining uh, system. And I, I'm basically, this is my long-winded way of saying I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't personally see a way out outside of just inflating things away. Now, that being said, like when you look at previous generations or periods of time, that's not always a super fun process. So like, can you get a little bit more into the nitty gritty? Like, if that's kind of your projection, what does that actually look like kind of on the ground? Let, let me... Before before I do that, let me just yeah. mention one thing on, on on inflation and tax receipts. So one yeah. of the reasons I've been bullish on the economy is that I I don't really pay all that much attention to to GDP and non farm payroll. What I track is tax receipts because tax you know it covers everybody. Everybody has to pay and hates to pay taxes, um, and and you can find them on a daily basis on in a website daily treasury statement. And this has kept me on the right side of the economy for the past two years. I mean, we had this explosion in tax receipt growing by 15% year over year with the same tax law. So it's not that we increased. No, what was happening is that strong growth, strong inflation and bracket creep, right? Because as the economy expands, people switch from uh, a high tax bracket. So, so tax receipt grow faster than the economy, which is one of the ways that the stealth inflation bailout works. 
And one of the reasons why, if you're running a government, you don't want to break that thing because it's, it's a golden goose, right? Uh, and if you are going to, you know, have this increased spending, you need the the, the, the the collection to keep up with that. And so far, it's been doing that. So that was my point on, on, on taxes and inflation. Uh, inflation bails out government even more so than bails out the private sector because of the private treat effect uh, and uh, bracket treat effect. And it's been doing that for the past two years, and it's still doing that. And you look at tax collection so far in the first, you know, uh, it's slowed a little bit, but we're still looking at plus nine, ten percent. So it's it's pretty impressive. I mean, these are China-like numbers. Uh, that was the the first thought. That and then the 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 question that that you mentioned, how does that look like? Um, I, it depends who you are. Um, you know, the, the past, the past 40 years have been fantastic for old, rich, uh, retired asset owners generally, uh, and, and corporate margins. Uh, these are the, basically we've had this historic transfer from, from workers to, to, uh, to capital owners from the young to the old, uh, and, and from, uh, and it's been a, a fantastic era for, for our industry, right? The 60, 40 portfolio was up 9% every year. You really need to be all that smart. I mean, if you were a smart guy, you did risk parity. Oh, which I know I'm going to get some blowback here, but yes, it is leveraging bonds. Okay. Functionally, risk parity is, you know, a 60-40 portfolio where you increase the allocation to bonds because it has volatility. Yeah, yeah. So you could do a lot of, you know, you could be on the golf course at 3 p.m., collect a management fee and, and, and just retire. And we, we had, you know, generally the financial service industry thrived during this period. Uh, now, the, the categories that were not doing so well were the, the young, the poor, the working, who were cut off from the property market, faced stagnant wages, uh, and generally could not acquire assets. I expect the next 20 years to be the exact opposite. So the pain is going to shift uh, for corporate margins. Uh, corporations obviously benefited a lot from cheap, you know, cheap capital. They could relocate factories in in, in, in in places where labor was really cheap. Uh, they had generally a very uh, supportive environment. Corporate income tax rate got cut. Um, antitrust was no longer applied. Uh, so you had this extraordinary increase in the share of, of wealth that goes to, to corporation to, to, to profits. Uh, and then the, the last part, of course, is going to be uh, traditional 60-40 portfolios, which worked so great because inflation was not there, because we had no inflation, you had a negative correlation between stocks and bond, and you had this fantastic situation where you basically got paid to hedge an equity portfolio with long-term treasuries. I mean, this is an option that pays you. It's fantastic. As this unwinds, this is going to be very painful for, for asset owners. The best uh, analog, and I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say that, would be the 70. Yeah. Absolutely. So my, my question, you know, one, one, something that people say when exactly what you just said, right, that inflation actually is kind of a transfer, right, from uh, capital owners to people who provide labor. And typically that tends to correlate to like old to young, right, because it's the old people that have the assets and it's the young people that typically do. do Especially the now. Right. So, you know, something that you also hear said about inflation quite a bit is that it is a it's the worst kind of tax because it's a tax on the poor and the uh, costs are outstripping the prices of wages. What, what would you respond to that? I, I don't want to give an absolute answer because I, I think inflation is a very broad phenomenon. It's kind of like a, a fever in the body, right? You can have a fever for a bunch of reasons because you got a cold, uh, because you have cancer. I mean, so. He's saying inflation is 
any, any sentence that starts with inflation is always and everywhere is going to be wrong, right? I mean, it's not always and everywhere monetary. It's not always and everywhere fiscal. It's not always and everywhere. It's complicated. That, that mm. Inflation is always and everywhere complicated. I'll go with that. So uh, my answer, what you describe is possible. It happened before. And, and I, I mean, I travel a lot to Latin America. And whenever I make my pro-inflation case, I, I mean, clients are sympathetic with me because they, they've experienced inflation and, and they know that they see the signs. But but they so they they follow me on the inflation side, but they don't follow me on it. But it's going to be a good thing part because they said no, inflation is how you destroy the middle class. And the story of Argentina, uh, Brazil to some extent, uh, and and then you have this kind of uh, well connected class at the top that benefits from it because they can hide assets in the, in U.S. dollars or condos in Miami, and that is indeed a tax on the poor. Um, so it can be. I'm not saying it's. It, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. What I'm saying is the inflation that we're experiencing right now is very different. Uh, it's inflation that's coming from the bottom to the top. Uh, the, 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 the areas where we are seeing the strongest job gains are for people without college degrees, paid hourly, minority, um, low income. If you look at the Atlanta Fed data, the, the, you can look at the wage gap between, you know, the quintile, the strongest job growth is there. So you actually see the, the bottom layer is actually you you are seeing on average wages are kind of keeping up with inflation. Now we basically at you know six percent on on wage growth, six percent inflation. But that six percent is not equal distributed. In a reversal of what was happening twenty years ago, uh, the the Google employee, the product manager at Meta, who you know does TikTok showing how she eats avocado all day long and goes to the yoga room, is getting fired, or you know their their stock options is worthless, and you are seeing. Um, wage gains at the bottom end because that's where we have the shortage. Fundamentally, the problem in the U.S. labor market is we have a shortage of healthy young workers that are willing to do hard jobs, hard physical jobs that cannot be automated with ChatGPT. Uh, and 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 where you know I would argue a lot of these jobs were done by illegal undocumented migrants who are no longer there. Now we have this very small generation, Gen Z, that's entering the labor force at the same time as you have a very large generation, boomers coming out, and we realize with heart, we just don't have the bodies. On top of that, you add the, the fact that we have obesity, anxiety, all these connected issues that reduce the supply, and you see that the, um, the, there's this mismatch in the labor market that's not being solved. Like firing a bunch of Google engineers is not going to give you more roofers, right. more plumbers, more truck drivers, more farmers. Uh, so I think we can have this this uh, th this inflation actually be redistributed. It certainly is redistributed if you think of the ratio of asset prices to labor. That's one of the charts yeah. that I always feature. I love it. It's S and P 500 divided by minimum wage. Tells you how much you need to work, uh, how many hours you need to work to buy one share in the index. Forty years ago, it was about four days. Now it's four months. Uh, so if you think on the, in terms of, you know, people trying to convert their labor into assets, which is what you want to do as a young person, right? You got not, unless you're a NYU trust fund baby, you got nothing. All you have to do is, is your labor. And typically it's not worth much because you start your career, uh, and you want to convert your labor so you can buy a house, uh, buy, you know, have a 401k, whatever that cost has been getting harder and harder, 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 harder for 40 years. And finally last year it went down. The price of every asset went down by 20% or more. Wages, at least nominally, increased by 5%. I think this is what we're trying to fix right now. 
Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times. Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Uh, Lindsay, can, we, can you kind of key in on that? Because that, again, I think that's a super important. So the amount of dollars, uh, you know, min- days of minimum wage to buy one share of the S&P, the sort of median income and what, like over uh, median price of a house over median income, all that sort of stuff. I, I think there's kind of a generational component to that, actually. And you have a, you have a great quote. Uh, I'm going to pull this out. Uh, I believe that the capital markets are still progressing along the long arc prophesized by uh, Neil Howe's fourth turning, the rise of secular inflation, the breakdown of 6040, and the eventual rejuvenation of American institutions by a new generational contract. So we've talked about a lot of that, right? We've talked about your secular inflation thesis. We've talked about uh, 6040 and the trouble that that's going to have. Talk to me about the last part of that statement, the rejuvenation and the creation of a new generational contract. What do you mean by that? I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Um, Neil Howe and uh, Strauss, fantastic book. I mean, just, you can just, there's something, so if there's a book you need to read every five years and every five years you're going to be blown away by more stuff. This is, you know, fourth turning. So there's really, they're the ones who came up with the term millennials and the generation and really thinking of history as a repetition of generational cycles. Uh, and they have this concept of, you know, every 180, basically every four generation, you have a major turning. Like you, ha- you have to basically get rid of the old so that the new can emerge. And according to a forecast, and this was really in the mid 90s, and, and they have all, I mean, everything is there, you know, big financial crisis, rise of populism, inflation comes in. All that is basically the, the social body trying to regenerate itself as one generation passes the baton to the next one. So in our case, it's a boomer generation and or the boomer plus sound, and you can see it in, in and it, it, it's clingy. It's a very clingy generation. The reason it's so clingy is because it's so large, right? So the, the boomers, by, by virtue of their size, had an unusual level of control over economic, political, and cultural institution in the US, and they still do. And now, I mean, I'm, the, the way I picture that is Nancy Pelosi holding her little crab. Like, <laughs> you know, they're not going away. I, I, actually, I see Diane Feinstein said that she's not gonna she's not gonna run again in 2024. <laughs> yeah. She's the, anyway, but you, you see that when median median age of Congress has exploded. Uh, you see this kind of geotocratic rule. Uh, but of course, you know that in the next 10 years, you know, I mean, we have physical limits to how long. Nancy Pelosi can hold on to a gravel or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I mean, it's not a political statement. It's just a generational one. Uh, so as this generation kind of passes, this generation is holding the assets, right? By and large, the, the mass majority of U.S. assets is owned by the, uh, uh, the boomer generation. Unusually large share of, of the assets. They need to pass these assets down to Gen Z's and millennials. Now, the problem is the assets are... I would argue still valued for the very low rates environment in which we lived it. So 
this is your, you know, every house where in my neighborhood in California where I live, you know, it's, it's nothing under 1.5 million, right? And then you look at the income of the people who are supposed to buy these houses, it just doesn't work, right? It's the whole millennial cannot buy a house, you know, and, and then you have the, you know, the best big story, you should stop eating avocado and then you'll be buying a house. No, that's not the problem. The avocado is not the problem. Uh, so we need a process where the value of these assets are written down and the value of wages are, is at least nominally increased so that we can transfer these assets. That's what's happening right now. Uh, and as we do that, there will also be a shift of power. We will, we need to clear a lot of institutions that no longer make sense. I mean, we still live in, in the world that was built basically after the end of World War II. Uh, and we see it. I mean, everywhere, if you look at, you know, uh, the rise of China, what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, uh, changes in warfare, you see that that world is creaking. The institutions that we have are not uh, set up to address the challenges that we face. And hopefully at the end of this 20-year process, which let's say starting 2008, you'll come up with a new social contract with a new generation in power and with new institutions. And I think that will restore, set the seeds for new prosperity. Mm. I tend to agree with that. It's, it's, you know, and even over, uh, you know, this sort of COVID period has been, you know, there's been distrust. Like you, you can kind of trace these sort of um, flashpoints, right? Like 2008, uh, that was kind of distrust in the banking system, especially by the younger generation, you know, yes. kind of grew up thinking they're, they're a bunch of crooks, which I, I don't think is really fair, but you know, there's a popular belief. Um, and then COVID, you know, you saw distrust in kind of, uh, mm -hmm. In sort yeah. of like the healthcare sorts of institutions, yeah. the WHO, that sort of thing. Science itself, rational thinking from, yeah, from both sides. I'm not, I'm, I'm not making a, I'm, I'm not saying it's the anti vacuum but on both sides, you, you see this kind of rise of religious thinking, which again, it's kind of a, a magical thinking. It's a sign of it. You know, you, you saw that in the middle ages, like at times like revival, oh, let's burn the witches. I, I think we, we had some of that during the COVID lockdowns. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, look, I, it, it was because it was on both sides, you know, and there were some yeah. people who like kind of flagrantly wanted to disregard any sort of experts. And then there was another group of people that, you know, kept, kept invoking the name of science without like really yeah. practicing it in an honest way. It was, it was both, both sides. And then even like media, right. I mean, Trump and his whole fake news campaign, honestly, I think did a decent amount of damage and probably highlighted some, some systemic biases that people knew were there before. So my whole, my whole point is, is, uh, I, I'm in agreement with you. Like Neil's come on the show and it does seem like a lot of these institutions that kind of make up the, the framework of modern life, there's starting to be more pronounced distrust. It's just hard to kind of see through to the other side, you know? I think if I were to make a inflation is always an everywhere statement, uh, I would say, well, not always everywhere. Inflation is very often and almost everywhere a problem of trust. I think hmm. if, if you if you go to, uh, you know, if you compare Switzerland to Argentina, you know, why is there no inflation in Switzerland? Why, you know, Argentina has inflation? I think the underlying true reason is that at the end of the day, the Swiss trust each other. They trust the government. They trust that the trains are going to run on time. They trust that the supplier is going to pay them. Uh, they trust that uh, their, their property is not going to get stolen. They trust that they're not going to be hit with some sort of tax out of nowhere. So as a result, because of this trust, inflation is very low. On the other hand, if you go to like Argentina or Venezuela, you don't trust anything, right? You don't trust that your supply is going to pay you. You don't trust that the government. So you're going to mark up everything because you always expect the worst. And as a result, 
this is a structurally higher inflation economy because you don't have that level of trust. And I think as the U.S. is progress is moving from a high trust society where, you know, you had one media, uh, you know, telling you that the evening news, uh, you had a government that, you know, generally, OK, like, you know, think of George H.W., right? I mean, yeah, sorry, George H. Bush, like the, the first one. I mean. No one really loved him, but you know we could all trust him. He seemed like a he seemed like a nice guy. Uh, where you, you trusted science, you trusted your experts, and you you trusted the schools, you trusted the medical system, and you see across every institution, any survey that you look at, this collapse in trust. Trust in, in Congress is very low. Trust in journalism is very low. Trust in science is very low. So all that is kind of a symptom of this breakdown. So the the secular kind of projection for you is is a, is a world of inflation. Uh, I really like the framing that you had there of kind of like America's moving from a high trust to a low trust type uh, type society. What are kind of the broader implications? Like what should people be expecting in their kind of more broad day-to-day life over the course of the next 10 years? Like when people hear this phrase of like building institutions, that's a very vague kind of word, right? We know how that happened in, you know, post-World War II. We had the Marshall Plan over in Europe. You had kind of the New Deal over here. Uh, there was investment in infrastructure. There were all these bodies that got created. What what does that look like to to build institutions? Like, how does that filter down into people's day to day? Well, the I would say that the happy scenario is is the post World War II, right? Where where mm. you you rebuild a you know you had the Great Depression was that rot uh, of of the old world, and then you have this this new new social contract rise in the middle class, building the state highway, GI Bill, uh, and then. In, insane level of consensus in terms of, of values, uh, which could be quite suffocating at times, right? I mean, the 50s were probably not a good time for everybody. Um, but um, I mean, I, if I'm optimistic, I, I would hope uh, that, that that the same things happen. Like when, you know, once we've gotten rid of uh, kind of the old stuff that's no longer working, I mean, I can make guess of, of what I think would happen. I think probably universal basic income is going to be something that's out there. Uh, change, changing the way we work, which certainly were accelerated by COVID, uh, where you've seen, uh, you know, a much more flexible economy, a redistribution of population, maybe away from the big cities because of the work from home movement, uh, changes in living arrangements as well. I think all that is kind of happening under the surface. And it will just become clearer and clearer as 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 we progress. Um, but I, I also want to stress the possibility that it can go horribly wrong. I mean, the U.S. is somewhat lucky that, you know, we are, I mean, I know Australia is supposed to be the lucky country, but the U.S. is also the lucky country. I mean, every fourth turning in the U.S. has been for the better, right? I mean, there are countries where that process just doesn't pan out, uh, where you you know, the, the institutions, uh, the old institutions die and the new ones that emerge are worse than the old ones. I mean, Germany in 1930s, uh, maybe Soviet Union, um, you know, France. I mean, for a lot of countries, this is a very difficult process. So, um, you know, we, we'll have to see how it unfolds. Uh, I think over time, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think the, uh, you know, the U.S. has, has tremendous um uh, ability to regenerate itself, it always has, uh, and and I am somewhat encouraged by by a lot of the things that we are seeing. I think the the inflation that we are seeing, no matter how painful it feels right now, is a sign that it's happening, and it's happening. I was a lot more worried six months ago when we had nine nine point one percent inflation, like mm. there was a risk that would go. But if we can settle in that range of 
So again, my view is structural I, the I star underlying inflation is around five, six percent, which is by the way what you'd find if you look at that uh, service X shelter and X energy, which is the new the new thing. Mm. That's where it's at, right? Five, six percent inflation, a decade of five, six percent inflation. You know, would do wonders. It would basically, because I mean, basically halves the, the real value of debt, right? It's something that goes at six percent every year, halves in ten years, right? So, if we can keep it there for about a decade, we'll see a lot of the debt is gone, the student loan crisis is averted, uh, and and then uh, actual leverage ratios will be a lot lower, so that then uh, we no longer need to have these kind of um, lower rates feeding new bubbles to so have new bubbles, but have actual real economic growth like we had in, in the 50s and the 60s instead of this uh, kind of, yeah, feeding bubble after bubble. Yeah, well said, Vincent. Um, I, we've got to wrap it here, but uh, thank you so much for your time. If people want to follow you, uh, find out more about the good work that you do or, or subscribe, what's the best way to, to do that? So the, the best way is to become a, a trading client of StoneX. Uh, we're a global financial service firm. Uh, offices everywhere. We do everything, stocks, bonds, options, derivatives, commodities, all of that stuff. Uh, so if you're already a client, uh, ask your StoneX rep to uh, shoot me an email and uh, see what we can do there. If you are not, uh, go to my Twitter page, Vincent Deluard, V-I-N-C-E-N-T-D-E-L-U-A-R-D. Pin tweet, there is a link. Uh, you click it, you can get a free trial. Uh, if you're institutional, we grant all of them. I'm very available on Twitter. I am very grateful. I've met fantastic, I mean, including the people of Blockworks uh, on uh, on Twitter. Uh, I love I love interacting. I love the questions. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, we can take it from the free trial. Uh, we have options, uh, very low priced option for what I believe is, um, I know I try my best to do, come up with uh, original global macro thinking, which I think is is really in short supply, uh, and and it's going to be increasingly crucial as we go through this cycle. I think you really need this kind of global macro roadmap, otherwise you get massacred by these you know vicious counter cycle rallies. Yeah, and you know what, Vincent? Maybe we can just close. I think the kindest thing I can think to say is in a in an industry of people who claim to be uh, you know. Uh, stand up contrarians. You are actually uh, a true contrarian and often stand right uh, more than you're wrong. So uh, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate your time. We'll have to do it again soon. This is a fun one. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.